and welcome back. We will be reading two chapters today in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, chapter 32 and 33. Starting with chapter 32. Francie had started a diary on her 13th birthday with the entry, December 15th. Today, I enter my teens. What will the year bring forth, I wonder? The year brought forth little, according to the entries, which became sparser as the year wore on. She had been prompted to start a diary because fictional heroines kept them and filled them with lush, sighing thoughts. Francie thought her diary would be like that, but, excepting for some romantic observations on Harold Clarence, actor, the entries were prosaic. Towards the end of the year, she rifled through the pages, reading an item here and there. January 8th. Grandma Mary Romley has a pretty carved box that her great-grandfather made in Austria over a hundred years ago. She has a black dress and white petticoat and shoes and stockings in it. They are her burying clothes, as she doesn't want to be buried in a shroud. Uncle Willie Flipman said he wants to be cremated and his ashes scattered from the Statue of Liberty. He thinks he'll be a bird in the next life, and he wants a good start. Aunt Evie said he's a bird already, a cuckoo. Mama scolded me for laughing. Is cremation better than burying? I wonder. January 10th. Papa sick today. March 21st. Neely stole pussy willows from McCarran's Park and gave them to Gretchen Hahn. Mama said he's too young to be thinking about girls. There's time enough, she said. April 2nd. Papa hasn't worked in three weeks. There's something wrong with his hands. They shake so much he can't hold anything. April 20th. Aunt Sissy says she's going to have a baby. I don't believe it because she's flat in front. I heard her tell Mama she's carrying it in the back. I wonder. May 8th. Papa sick today. May 9th. Papa went to work tonight but had to come home. Said the people didn't need him. May 10th. Papa sick. Had bad nightmares in the daytime and screamed. I had to get Aunt Sissy. May 12th. Papa hasn't worked for over a month. Neely wants to get his working papers and leave school. Mama said no. May 15th. Papa worked tonight. He said he's going to take charge of things from now on. He scolded Neely about the working papers. May 17th. Papa came home sick. Some kids were following him on the street and making fun of him. I hate kids. May 20th. Neely has a paper route now. He won't let me help sell papers. May 28th. Carney did not pinch my cheek today. He pinched something else. I guess I'm getting too big to sell junk. May 30th. Miss Gardner said they are going to publish my wintertime composition in the magazine. June 2nd. Papa came home sick today. Neely and I had to help Mama get him upstairs. Papa cried. June 4th. I got an A on my composition today. We had to write on my ambition. I only made one mistake. I wrote playwriter and Miss Gardner said the right word was playwright. June 7th. Two men brought Papa home today. He was sick. Mama was away. I put Papa to bed and gave him black coffee. When Mama came home, she said that was the right thing to do. June 12th. Miss Tinmore gave me Schubert's Serenade today. Mama's ahead of me. She's got Tannhauser's Evening Star. Neely says he's ahead of both of us. He can play Alexander's Ragtime Band without notes. June 20th. Went to show. Saw The Girl of the Golden West. 
It was the best show I ever saw, the way the blood dripped through the ceiling. June 21st. Papa was away for two nights. We didn't know where he was. He came home sick. June 22nd. Mama turned my mattress today and found my diary and read it. Everywhere I had the word drunk, she made me cross it out and write sick. It's lucky I didn't have anything against Mama written down. If ever I have children, I will not read their diaries as I believe that even a child is entitled to some privacy. If Mama finds this again and reads it, I hope she will take the hint. June 23rd. Neely says he has a girl. Mama says he's too young. I wonder. June 25th. Uncle Willie, Aunt Evie, Sissy, and her John over tonight. Uncle Willie drank a lot of beer and cried. He said the new horse he's got, Bessie, did worse than went on him. Mama scolded me for laughing. June 27th. We finished the Bible today. Now we got to start all over. We've gone through Shakespeare four times already. July 1st. Intolerance. Francie put her hand over the entry to hide the words. For a moment she thought the waves would pass over her again, but the feeling went away. She turned the page and read another entry. July 4th. Sergeant McShane brought Papa home today. Papa wasn't arrested, as we thought at first. He was sick. Mr. McShane gave Neely and me a quarter. Mama made us give it back. July 5th, Papa's still sick. Will he ever work again? I wonder. July 6th, we started playing the North Pole game today. July 7th, North Pole. July 8th, North Pole. July 9th, North Pole. Expected rescue did not come. July 10th, we opened the tin can bank today. There was $8.20 in it. My golden pennies had turned black. July 20th, all the money from the tin can bank is gone. Mama took some washing to do for Miss McGarrity. I helped iron but burnt a hole on Miss McGarrity's drawers. Mama won't let me iron anymore. July 23rd, I got a job at Handler's Restaurant just for the summer. I wash dishes during the dinner and supper rush. I use gobs of soft soap out of a barrel. On Monday, a man comes and collects three barrels of scraps of fat and brings back one barrel of soft soap on Wednesday. Nothing is wasted in this world. I get $2 a week and my meals. It isn't hard work, but I don't like that soap. July 24th. Mama says, I'll be a woman before I knew it. I wonder. July 28th. Floss Gaddis and Frank are going to be married as soon as he gets a raise. Frank says that the way President Wilson is running things will be in the war before you know it. He says he's marrying because he wants a wife and kids so that when war comes, he doesn't have to fight. Flossie says that's not true. It's a case of true love. I wonder. I remember how Flossie used to chase him years ago when he was washing the horse. July 29th. Papa was sick today. He's going to a job. He said Mama had to stop washing for Miss McGarity and I have to give up my job. He says we'll be rich and I'll go to live in the country. I wonder. August 10th. Sissy says she's going to have a baby soon. I wonder. She's as flat as a pancake. August 17th. Papa has been working for three weeks now. We have wonderful suppers. August 18th. Papa's sick. August 19th. Papa's sick because he lost his job. Mr. Hendler won't take me back in the restaurant. He says I'm not reliable. September 1st. Aunt Evie, Uncle Willie over tonight. Willie sang Frankie and Johnny and put dirty words in it. Aunt Evie stood on a chair and punched him in the nose. Mama scolded me for laughing. 
September 10th. I started my last year of school. Miss Gardner said if I keep on getting A's on my composition, she might let me write a play for graduation. I have a very beautiful idea. There will be a girl in a white dress and her hair hanging down her back and she will be fate. Other girls will come out onto the stage and tell what they want from life and fate will tell them what they'll get. At the end, a girl in a blue dress will spread out her arms and say, Is life worth living then? And there will be a chorus that says, Yes, only it will all be in rhyme. I told Papa about it, but he was too sick to understand. Poor Papa. September 18th. I asked Mama could I get a castle clip, and she said no, that hair was a woman's crowning beauty. Does that mean she expects me to be a woman soon? I hope so because I want to be my own boss and get my hair cut off if I feel like it. September 24th. Tonight, when I took a bath, I discovered that I was changing into a woman. It's about time. October 25th. I will be glad when this book is filled up as I am getting tired of keeping a diary. Nothing important ever happens. Francie came to the last entry. Only one more blank page left. Well, the sooner she got it filled, the sooner the diary keeping would be over and she wouldn't have to bother with it anymore. She wet her pencil. November 2nd. Sex is something that invariably comes into everyone's life. People write pieces against it. The priests preach against it. They even make laws against it but it keeps going on just the same. All the girls in school have but the one topic of conversation, sex and boys. They are very curious about it. Am I curious about sex? She studied the last sentence. The line on the inner edge of her right eyebrow deepened. She crossed out the sentence and rewrote it to read, I am curious about sex. Chapter 33 Yes, there was a great curiosity about sex among the adolescent children of Williamsburg. There was a lot of talk about it. Among the younger children, there was some exhibitionism. You show me, and I'll show you. A few hypocrites devised such evasive games as playing house or doctor. A few uninhibited ones did what they called play dirty. There was a great hush-hush about sex in that neighborhood. When children asked questions, the parents didn't know how to answer them, for the reason that these people did not know the correct words to use. Each married couple had its own secret words for things which were whispered in bed in the quiet of night, but there were few mothers brave enough to bring these words out into the daylight and present them to the child. When the children grew up, they in turn invented words which they couldn't tell their children. Katie Nolan was neither a mental nor a physical coward. She tackled every problem masterfully. She didn't volunteer sex information, but when Francie asked questions, she answered as best she knew how. Once, when Francie and Neely were young children, they had agreed to ask their mother certain questions. They stood before her one day. Francie was the spokesman. Mama, where did we come from? God gave you to me. The Catholic children were willing to accept that, but the next question was a sticker. How did God get us to you? I can't explain that because I'd have to use a lot of big words that you wouldn't understand. Say the big words and see if we understand them. If you understood them, I wouldn't have to tell you. Say it in some kind of words. Tell us how babies get here. No, you're too little yet. If I told you, you'd go around telling all the other children what you know, and their mothers would come up here and say I was a dirty lady and there would be fights. Well, tell us why girls are different from boys. Mama thought for a while. 
The main difference is that a little girl sits down when she goes to the bathroom and a little boy stands up. But mama, said Francie, I stand up when I'm afraid in that dark toilet. And I, confessed little Neely, sit down when... Mama interrupted. Well, there's a little bit of man in every woman and a little bit of woman in every man. That ended the discussion because it was so puzzling to the children that they decided to go no further with it. When Francie, as she wrote in her diary, started to change into a woman, she went to Mama about her sex curiosity, and Katie told her simply and plainly all that she herself knew. There were times in the telling when Katie had to use words which were considered dirty, but she used them bravely and unflinchingly because she knew no other words. No one had ever told her about the things she told her daughter, and in those days there were no books available for people like Katie from which they could learn about sex in the right way. In spite of the blunt words and homely phrasing, there was nothing revolting in Katie's explanations. Francie was luckier than most children of the neighborhood. She found out all she needed to know at the time she had to know it about it. She never decided to slink into dark hallways with other girls and exchange guilty confidences. She never had to learn things in a distorted way. If normal sex was a great mystery in the neighborhood, criminal sex was an open book. In all poor and congested city areas, the prowling sex fiend is a nightmarish horror that haunts parents. There seems to be one in every neighborhood. There was one in Williamsburg in that year when Francie turned 14. For a long time, he had been molesting little girls, and although the police were on continual lookout for him, he was never caught. One of the reasons was that when a little girl was attacked, the parents kept it secret so no one would know and discriminate against the child and look on her as a thing apart and make it impossible for her to resume a normal childhood with her playmates. One day, a little girl on Francie's block was killed and it had to come out into the open. She had been a quiet little thing of seven, well-behaved and obedient. When she didn't come home from school, her mother didn't worry. She thought the child had stopped somewhere to play after supper, they went looking for her. They questioned her playmates. No one had seen the child since school let out. A fear wave swept over the neighborhood. Children were called in off the streets and kept behind locked doors. McShane came over with half a dozen policemen and they began combing the roofs and the cellars. The child was found at last by her loudish 17-year-old brother. Her little body was laying across a busted-down doll carriage in the cellar of a nearby house. Her torn dress and undergarments, her shoes, and her little red socks were thrown on an ash heap. The brother was questioned. He was excited and stuttered when he answered. They arrested him on suspicion. McShane wasn't stupid. The arrest was a blind to put the killer off guard. McShane knew the killer would feel safe and strike again, and this time the police would be waiting for him. Parents went into action. The children were told, and to hell with finding the right words, about the fiend and the terrible things he did. Little girls were warned not to take candy from strangers, not to speak to strange men. Mothers took to waiting in the doorways for their children when school let out. The streets were deserted. It was as if the Pied Piper had led all the children off to some mountain fastness. The whole neighborhood was terrorized. Johnny got so worried about Francie that he got a gun. Johnny had a friend named Bert who was night watchman on the corner bank. Bert was 40 years old and married to a girl half his age of whom he was insanely jealous. 
He suspected that she took a lover in the nights when he was at the bank. He brooded over this so much that he came to the conclusion that it would be a relief if he knew for sure that this was so. He was willing to exchange soul-destroying suspicion for heartbreaking reality. Accordingly, he slipped home at odd hours during the night, while his friend, Johnny Nolan, watched the bank for him. They had signals. When, in the night, poor Bert got so tormented that he had to go home, he asked the cop on the beat to ring the Nolan bell three times. If Johnny was home when the signal came, he jumped out of bed like a fireman, dressed hurriedly, and ran to the bank as though his life depended on it. After the watchman slipped out, Johnny lay on Bert's narrow cot and felt the hard revolver through the thin pillow. He hoped somebody would attempt to rob the bank so he could save the money and be a hero. But all the hours of his night watching were without event. There wasn't even the excitement of the watchman catching his wife in adultery. The girl was always sleeping soundly and alone when her husband sneaked into their flat. When Johnny heard of the rape and murder, he went over to the bank to see his friend Bert. He asked the watchman whether he had another gun. Sure, why? I'd like the lend of it, Bert. Why, Johnny? There's this fellow loose that killed the little girl on our block. I hope they catch him, Johnny. I sure hope they catch the son of a bitch. I have a daughter of my own. Yeah, yeah, I know, Johnny. So I'd like you to loan me a gun. It's against the Sullivan Law. It's against some other law for you to go away from the bank and leave me here. How do you know? I may be a robber. Ah, no, Johnny. I figure if we break one law, we might as well break another. All right, all right. I'll lend it. He opened a desk drawer and took out a revolver. Now I'll show you. When you want to kill somebody, you point it at him like this. He pointed it at Johnny and pulled this thing. I see. Let me try it. In his turn, Johnny aimed it at Bert. Course, said Bert. I ain't never shot off the goddamned thing myself. This is the first time I've ever held a gun in my hand, explained Johnny. Watch out then, said the watchman quietly. It's loaded. Johnny shivered and put the gun down carefully. Say, Bert, I didn't know. We might have killed each other. Jesus, you're right, the watchman shuddered. One jerk of a finger and a man is dead, mused Johnny. Johnny, you ain't thinking of killing yourself. No, I'm letting the booze do that. Johnny started to laugh, but stopped abruptly. As he left with the gun, Bert said, Let me know if you catch the bastard. I'll do that, promised Johnny. Yeah, so long. So long, Bert. Johnny gathered his family around him and explained about the gun. He warned Francie and Neely not to touch it. This little cylinder holds death for five people in it, he explained dramatically. Francie thought the revolver looked like a grotesque beckoning finger, a finger that beckoned to death and made it come running. She was glad when Papa put it out of sight under his pillow. The gun lay under Johnny's pillow for a month and was never touched. There were no further outrages in the neighborhood. It seemed that the fiend had moved on. Mothers began to relax. A few, however, like Katie, continued to watch in the door or hallway when they knew the children were due home from school. It was the killer's habit to lurk in dark hallways for his victims. Katie felt that it cost nothing to be careful. When most of the people were lulled into a feeling of security, the pervert struck again. 
One afternoon, Katie was cleaning in the halls of the second house away from her own. She heard children in the street and knew that school was out. She wondered whether it was necessary to go back and wait in their hallway for Francie, as she had been doing since the murder. Francie was nearly 14 and old enough to take care of herself. Besides, the killer usually attacked little girls of six or seven. Maybe he had been caught in some other neighborhood and was safe in jail. Still, she hesitated, then decided to go home. She'd be needing a fresh bar of soap within the hour and could kill two birds with one stone if she got it now. She looked up and down the street and grew uneasy when she didn't see Francie among the children. Then she remembered that Francie went further to school and came home a bit later. Once in the flat, Katie decided to heat the coffee and have a cupful. By that time, Francie should be home and her mind would be at peace. She went into the bedroom to see if the gun was still under the pillow. Of course it was, and she felt foolish for looking. She drank the coffee, took her bar of yellow soap, and started back for work. Francie got home at her usual time. She opened the hall door, stared up and down the long, narrow hall, saw nothing, and closed the solid wood door behind her. Now the hall was darkened. She walked the short length of hall towards the stairs. As she put her foot on the first step, she saw him. He stepped out from a small recess under the stairs that had an entrance to the cellar. He walked softly but with lunging steps. He was thin and undersized and wore a shabby dark suit with a collarless and tieless shirt. His thick, bushy hair grew down on his forehead almost to his eyebrows. He had a beaked nose and his mouth was a thin, crooked line. Even in the semi-darkness, Francie was aware of his wet-looking eyes. She took another step, then, as she got a better look at him, her legs turned into cement. She couldn't lift them to take the next step. Her hands clutched two banister spokes and she clung to them. What hypnotized her into being unable to move was the fact that the man was coming towards her with his lower garments opened. Francie stared at the exposed part of his body in paralyzed horror. It was a wormy white contrasted with the ugly dark sallowness of his hands and face. She felt the same kind of nausea that she once felt when she saw a swarm of fat white maggots crawling over the putrid carcass of a rat. She tried to scream, Mama, but her throat closed over and only air came out. It was like a horrible dream where you tried to scream, but no sound came. She couldn't move. She couldn't move. Her hands hurt from gripping the banister spokes. Ir irrelevantly, she wondered why they didn't snap off in her tight grasp. And now he was coming towards her and she couldn't run. She couldn't run. Please God, she prayed, let some tenant come along. At this moment, Katie was walking down the stairs quietly with the bar of yellow soap in her hand. When she came to the top of the last flight, she looked down and saw the man coming at Francie and saw that Francie was frozen to the banister spokes. Katie made no sound. Neither one saw her. She turned quietly and ran up the two flights to her flat. Her hand was steady as she took the key from under the mat and opened the door. She took precious time, not aware of what she was doing, to set the cake of yellow soap on the washtub cover. She got the gun from under the pillow, aimed it, and keeping it aimed, put it under her apron. Now her hand was trembling. She put her other hand under her apron and steadied the gun with her two hands. Holding the gun in this way, she ran down the stairs. The murderer reached the foot of the stairs, rounded it, leapt up the two steps, 
and quick as a cat threw one arm around Francie's neck and pressed his palm to her mouth to prevent her screaming. He put his other arm around her waist and started to pull her away. He slipped and the exposed part of his body touched her bare leg. The leg jerked as though a live flame had been put to it. Her legs came out of the paralysis then and she kicked and struggled. At that, the pervert pressed his body close to hers, pinning her against the banister. He began undoing her clenched fingers one by one. He got one hand free, forced it behind her back, and leaned hard against it while he started to work on her other hand. There was a sound. Francie looked up and saw her mother running down that last flight of stairs. Katie was running awkwardly, not balancing well on account of having both hands clutched under her apron. The man saw her. He couldn't see that she had a gun. Reluctantly, he loosed his hold and backed down the two steps, keeping his wet eyes on Katie. Francie stood there, one hand still gripping the banister spoke. She couldn't get her hand opened. The man got off the steps, pressed his back to the wall, and started sliding against it to the cellar door. Katie stopped, knelt on a step, pushed her apron bulge between two banister spokes, stared at the exposed part of his body, and pulled the trigger. There was a loud explosion and the smell of burnt cloth as the hole in Katie's apron smoldered. The pervert's lip curled back to show broken, dirty teeth. He put both hands on his stomach and fell. His hands came away as he hit the floor, and blood was all over that part of him that had been warm white. The narrow hall was full of smoke. Women screamed. Doors banged open. There was the sound of running feet in the halls. People in the streets started pouring into the hall. In a second, the doorway was jammed and no one could get in or out. Katie grabbed Francie's hand and tried to pull her up the stairs, but the child's hand was frozen to the spoke. She couldn't open her fingers. In desperation, Katie hit Francie's wrist with the gun butt and the numb fingers relaxed at last. Katie pulled her up the steps and through the halls. She kept meeting women coming out of their flats. What's the matter? What's the matter? They screamed. It's all right now. It's all right now, Katie told them. Francie kept stumbling and going to her knees. Katie had to drag her on her knees the length of the hall. She got her into the flat and onto the couch in the kitchen. Then she put the chain bolt on the door. As she put the gun down carefully next to the bar of yellow soap, her hand accidentally touched the muzzle. She was frightened when she found it warm. Katie knew nothing about guns. She had never shot one before. Now she thought the heat might make the gun go off by itself. She opened the wash tub cover and threw the gun into the water in which some soiled clothes were soaking. Because the bar of yellow soap was mixed up with the whole thing, she threw that in after the gun. She went to Francie. Did he hurt you, Francie? No, Mama, she moaned. Only he, his, I mean it, touched my leg. Where? Francie pointed to a spot above her blue sock. The skin was white and unharmed. Francie looked at it in surprise. She had had no idea that skin... She had an idea that the skin would be eaten away there. There's nothing the matter with it, Mama said. But I can still feel where it touched. She moaned and cried out insanely. I want my leg cut off. People pounded on the door, demanding to know what had happened. Katie ignored them and kept the door bolted. She made Francie swallow a cup of scalding hot black coffee. Then she walked up and down the room. She was trembling now. She didn't know what to do next. Neely had been loitering on the street when the shot sounded. 
When he saw people crowded into the hallway, he too worked his way in. He got up on the stairs and looked over the banisters. The pervert was huddled where he had fallen. The crowd of women had torn the trousers from his body, and all who could get near were grinding their heels into his flesh. Others were kicking at him and spitting on him. All were shrieking obscenities at him. Neely heard his sister's name. Francie Nolan? Yeah, Francie Nolan. You sure? Francie Nolan? I tell you, I seen. Her mother went and... Francie Nolan! He heard the ambulance gong. He thought Francie had been killed. He rushed up the stairs sobbing. He pounded on the door screaming, Let me in, Mama, let me in! Katie let him in. When he saw Francie laying on the couch, he bawled louder. Now Francie started to bawl. Stop it! Stop it! Katie screamed. She shook Neely until he didn't have a sob left in him. Run and get your father. Look all over until you find him. Neely found Papa in McGarity's saloon. Johnny was just about to settle down to a long afternoon of slow drinking. When he heard Neely's story, he dropped his glass and ran out with him. They couldn't get back into the house. The ambulance was at the door, and four policemen were fighting away through the crowd, trying to get the ambulance doctor in. Johnny and Neely went through the next door cellar. Johnny and Neely went through the next door cellar into the yard, helped each other over the board fence into their own yard, and climbed up onto the fire escape. When Katie saw Johnny's derby looming out, looming up outside the window, she screamed and ran around frantically looking for the gun. Fortunately for Johnny, she had forgotten where she had thrown it. Johnny ran to Francie and, big as she was, he picked her up in his arms as though she were a baby. He rocked her and told her to go to sleep. Francie kept insisting that she wanted her leg cut off. Did he get her? asked Johnny. No, but I got him, Katie said grimly. Did you shoot him with the pistol? With what else? She showed him the hole in her apron. Did you shoot him good? As good as I could. But she keeps talking about her leg. His... Her eyes slid towards Neely. Well, you know, touched her leg. She pointed to the spot. Johnny looked, but he saw nothing. That's too bad it had to happen to her, Katie said. She's such a one for remembering. She might never get married remembering. We'll fix that leg, promised Papa. He put Francie back on the couch, got the carbolic acid, and swabbed the spot with the strong raw stuff. Francie welcomed the burning pain of the acid. She felt that the evil of the man's touch was being seared away. Someone pounded on the door. They remained quiet and unanswering. They wanted no outsiders in their home at this time. A strong Irish voice called, Open up the door! Tis the law now! Katie opened the door. A policeman walked in, followed by an ambulance intern carrying a bag. The cop pointed to Francie. This the kid he tried to get? Yes. Doc, here, has to make an examination. I won't allow it, protested Katie. It's the law, he answered quietly. So Katie and the intern took Francie into the bedroom, and the terrified child had to submit to the indignity of an examination. The jaunty intern made a quick and careful examination. He straightened up and started to put his instruments back into the bag. He said, She's okay. He never got near her. He took her swollen wrist in his hand. How did this happen? I had to hit her with the gun to make her let go of the banister, Katie explained. He noticed her bruised knee. What's this? That's where I had to drag her along the hall. Then he got to the angry burn just above her ankle. And what in the name of God is this? 
That's where her father washed her leg with carbolic acid where that man touched her. My God, exploded the intern. You trying to give her third degree burns? He opened the bag again, put cooling salve on the burn, and bandaged it neatly. My God, he said again. Between the two of you, you did more damage than the criminal. He smoothed down Francie's dress, patted her cheek, and said, You'll be all right, girlie. I'm going to give you something to put you to sleep. When you wake up, just remember that you had a bad dream. That's all it was. A bad dream. Here? Yes, sir, said Francie gratefully. Again, she saw a poised needle. She remembered something from a long time ago. She worried. Was her arm clean? Would he say? That's a brave girl, he said, as the needle jabbed. Why, he's on my side, thought Francie hazily. She went to sleep immediately after the hypodermic. Katie and the doctor came out into the kitchen. Johnny and the cop were sitting at the table. The cop had a bit of a pencil clutched in his big paw, and he was painfully making small notes in a small notebook. Kid all right? asked the cop. Fine, the intern told him. Just suffering from shocks and parentin... Parentinitin? Parentinitis? I believe it's parentinitis. He winked at the cop. When she wakes up, he said to Katie, remember to keep telling her that she had a bad dream. Don't talk about it otherwise. What do I owe you, Doc? asked Johnny. Nothing, Mac. This is on the city. Thank you, whispered Johnny. The intern noticed Johnny's trembling hands. He pulled a pint flask from his hip pocket and thrust it at Johnny. Here! Johnny looked up at him. Go ahead, Mac, insisted the intern. Gratefully, Johnny took a long swallow. The intern passed the flask to Katie. You too, lady. You look as if you need it. Katie took a big drink. The cop spoke up. What do you take me for? An orphan? When the intern got the flask back to the cop, there was only an inch left in it. He sighed and emptied the bottle. The cop sighed too and turned to Johnny. Now, where do you keep the gun? Under my pillow. Get it. I got to take it over to the station house. Katie, forgetting how she had disposed of the gun, went into the bedroom to look under the pillow. She came back, looking worried. Why, it's not there. The cop laughed. Naturally, you took it out to shoot the louse. It took Katie a long time to remember that she had thrown it into the wash tub. She fished it out. The cop wiped it off and took out the bullets. He asked Johnny a question. You got a permit for this, Mac? No. That's tough. It's not my gun. Who gave it to you? No, nobody. Johnny didn't want to get the watchman in trouble. How do you get it then? I found it. Yes, I found it in the gutter. All oiled and loaded. Honest. And that's your story. That's my story. It's okay by me, Mac. See that you stick to it. The ambulance driver hollered from the hall that he was back from taking the man to the hospital and that Doc was ready to leave. Hospital? Katie asked. Then I didn't kill him. Not quite, said the intern. We'll get him on his feet so's he can walk to the electric chair by himself. I'm sorry, said Katie. I meant to kill him. I got a statement from him before he passed out, said the cop. That little kid down the block, he killed her. He was responsible for two other jobs, too. I got his statement, signed and witnessed. He patted his pocket. I wouldn't be surprised if I got a promotion out of this when the commissioner hears. I hope so, said Katie bleakly. I hope somebody gets some good out of it. 
When Francie woke the next morning, Papa was there to tell her that it was all a dream. And as time passed, it did seem like a dream to Francie. It left no ugliness in her memories. Her physical terror had blunted her emotional perceptions. The terror on the stairs had been brief, a bare three minutes in time, and terror had served as an anesthetic. The events following were hazy in her mind on account of the unaccustomed hypodermic. Even the hearing in court where she had to tell her story seemed like a part in an unreal play in which her lines were brief. There was a hearing, but Katie was told beforehand that it was a technicality. Francie remembered little of it except that she told her story and Katie told hers. Few words were needed. I was coming home from school, testified Francie, and when I got in the hall, this man came out and grabbed me before I could scream. While he was trying to drag me off the stairs, my mother came down. Katie said, I came down the stairs and saw him there pulling my daughter. I ran up and got the gun, it didn't take long, and I ran down and shot him while he was trying to sneak down the cellar. Francie wondered whether Mama would be arrested for shooting a man, but no, it ended up with the judge shaking Mama's hand, and hers too. A lucky thing happened about the newspapers. A soused reporter, going through his nightly routine of calling up the station houses for police blotter news, got the facts of the story, but confused the Nolan name with the name of the policeman on the case. There was a half-column item in a Brooklyn paper which said that Miss O'Leary of Williamsburg had shot a prowler in the hallway of her home. The next day, two of the New York newspapers gave it two inches in which they stated that Miss O'Leary of Williamsburg had been shot by a prowler in the hallway of her home. Eventually, the whole affair faded away into the background. Katie was a neighborhood heroine for a while, but as time passed, the neighborhood forgot the murdering pervert. The thing only, they remembered only that Katie Nolan had shot a man. And in speaking of her, they said that she's not one to get into a fight with. Why, she'd shoot a person just as soon as look at them. The scar from the carbolic acid never left Francie's leg but it dwindled down to the size of a dime. Francie got used to it in time, and as she grew older, she seldom noticed it anymore. As for Johnny, they fined him $5 for violating the Sullivan Law, having a gun without a permit. And, oh yes, the watchman's young wife eventually ran away with an Italian a little nearer her own age. Some days later, Sergeant McShane came over looking for Katie. He saw her lugging a can of ashes out to the curb, and his heart turned over with pity. He gave her a hand with the ash can. Katie thanked him and looked up at him. She had seen him once since the Maddie Mahoney outing, the day that he had asked Francie was she her mother. The other time was when he had brought Johnny home, the time when Johnny couldn't get himself home. Katie had heard that Miss McShane was now in a sanatorium for incurable tuberculosis patients. She was not expected to live long. Would he marry again afterwards? Katie wondered. Of course he will. She answered her own question. He is a fine-looking, upstanding man with a good job, and some woman will snap him up. He took off his hat while he spoke to her. Miss Nolan, the boys down at the station house and myself do be thanking you for helping us in the catching of the murderer. You're welcome, said Katie conventionally. And to show their appreciation, what did the boys do but pass the hat for you? He extended an envelope. Money? she asked. It is that. Keep it. 
Sure, you'll be needin' it. What with your man not workin' steady, and the children needin' this and that. That's none of your business, Sergeant McShane. You can see that I work hard, and we don't need anything from anybody. Just as you say. He put the envelope back into his pocket, looking at her steadily all the while. Here's a woman, he thought, with a trim figure on her, and a pretty white-faced skin and black curling hair, and she's got more courage enough and pride for six like her. I'm a middle-aged man of 45, his thoughts went on, and she's but a slip of a girl. Katie was 31, but looked much younger. We've both had hard luck when it came to Marion, that we did. McShane knew all about Johnny, and knew that he wouldn't last long the way he was going on. He had nothing but pity for Johnny. He had nothing but pity for Molly, his wife. He wouldn't have harmed either of them. He had never once considered being physically unfaithful to his sickly wife. But is hoping in my heart harming either one of them? He asked himself. Of course, there'll be the waitin'. How many years? Two? Five? Ah, well, I've waited a long time without hope of happiness. Sure, and I can wait a bit longer now. He thanked her again and said goodbye formally. As he held her hand in the handclasp, he thought, She'll be my wife someday. God and she willin'. Katie could not know what he was thinking. Or could she? Maybe. Because something prompted her to call after him. I hope that someday you'll be as happy as you deserve to be, Sergeant McShane.